Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Noor Halabi about radical hospitality, American policy, media, and immigration. Um, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, David. Um, this is a fantastic book. Uh, it's both really, really interesting, um, has real kind of important um, points to make for kind of contemporary um, life, both actually in, in, in the States, but also in, in other countries. But it's also an incredibly ambitious book uh, in terms of its scope and the kind of breadth uh, of, of material it, it covers. Um, and I suppose the place to start with um, a book of that uh, kind of nature is the title. Um, and one of the things the book does is, is make, I think, an important theoretical contribution with this idea of radical hospitality. Um, so what's going on with the title? What, what does that uh, term radical hospitality mean? So the intention with the book, like you said, is to provide a theoretical contribution partly through um, an interdisciplinary melding of multiple fields from media and communication studies, journalism history, but also research from race and ethnicity studies, um, migration studies and um, and history. So there's a lot of melding of different fields. And through that, this ability to apply a lens of hospitality as a paradigm shift to how we denaturalize discourses that dehumanize um, immigrants. So I'll give you an example of how this entire frame of hospitality itself is radical. So I start off the book with an example from a um, from a presidential debate. Uh, the candidates uh, at the time, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, were being asked the question by Chris Wallace, who is a very established journalist in um, the American journalism field, um, asking them, why do you think uh, you are best equipped to deal with the question of race facing this country um, during this period. And oftentimes what's going on is 
we turn the idea of race and we turn the idea of migration into the problem and thereby make the figure of the migrant and the racialized person the body through in which this problem supposedly of migration and racialized people resides. And of course, I talk more in the book about the fact that migration has become a proxy to questions of race because more and more um, the makeup of incoming migrants is more and more um, uh, non-white global South immigrants coming to the global North. And so migration becomes one of the vectors that racial difference is inserted into a society. So oftentimes there's the slippage when we talk about race and when we talk about migration. Um, so oftentimes what I try to do throughout the book is denaturalize conversations that we have had um we've become very used to through which we have um, normalized a, a latent level of dehumanization of the immigrant in everyday journalism and everyday policymaking. Um, so I think that's what um, that contribution of radical hospitality is all about. I mean, as much as, and you've gestured towards this, it's a book about media studies. It's a book uh, about history. Um, it makes a contribution to kind of reconceptualizing uh, racial inequalities. It's also quite a sort of a personal book, I, I guess. And I'm interested to know where your sort of experience fits into the analysis as well. That's a, that's a very fitting question. This book is a very interesting project. It initially started as a larger comparative multi-country project. Um, at the time, I was a Syrian immigrant in the United States conducting my PhD, and I realized that I actually couldn't conduct a multiple, multiple country project because the travel ban passed just as, so what in the UK would be the transfer versus the um, writing and the, the field work of the dissertation, it was the point where in between your dissertation proposal and the dissertation itself. So I had just proposed this multi-country project and realized I couldn't travel anymore because of the travel ban. So I couldn't re-enter the country to continue my studies if I left. Um, and part of that experience, as well as the experience of I'm a Syrian, and during this project, I was also um, bringing my family to the US. I was applying for asylum for them. Um, and the experience of encountering the uh, asylum process, the immigration process, the travel ban all informed the project. And I talk more in the book about how um, the travel ban, experiencing the asylum uh, sort of journey with my family, COVID, all of these different big interruptions that happened during the book informed the book, and I hope for the better. Um, in ways that I hope can continue to help us think um, as a sort of human community about how we encounter movement and mobility um, in big junctures, uh, such as these political policy, but also natural epidemics and things like that. I mean, we're, we're going to come back uh, to the travel ban in, in, in some detail because it provides um, the kind of final or sort of concluding moment uh, to the book but to begin with let's go like literally all the way back to the start um, of in some ways kind of not just U.S. immigration um, policy but also the, the nature of the kind of the U.S. 
itself. And one of the things you, you do quite early on in the book is put forward the framework of understanding hospitality towards um, specific ethnic and, and racial groups. And I'm interested to know, I suppose, the story of Native Americans and African Americans and where hospitality fits in um, to, to that um, story. So I think this connects as well with the theoretical framework chapter in the sense that I'm very much trying to advance hospitality as a radical paradigm shifting framework that can help us reconceptualize how we think of immigration. So when I get from the theory chapter to that chapter that's sort of a historical um, groundwork, I talk about how we can understand every immigration journey as a dyadic relationship between a host and a guest. Um, And I talk about how in the United States, as a settler colonial nation, the the first history of these dyadic relationships was poisoned. So we have the first has ghost um, host guest dyad, which um, descends into a relationship of uh, host hostage. So the um, the incoming settler colonial um, contingent turns assumes the position of host and turns the original host into a hostage in their own nation. They've lost their freedom. They've lost their their connection to land property, all these different linguistic, historical, religious, and all other. uh, I mean, there's multiple historians who have looked at the history of residential schools and all the violence that was inflicted on Native Americans as part of this process. Similarly, I talk about um, African Americans and the experience of slavery specifically as a degeneration of, again, another dyadic hospitality relationship. So here, the by then, the settler colonial had, again, assumed the position of host and brought in a, not a guest, but a hostage against their will, kidnapped from their home countries, from their home continent, um, stripped from their languages, their religions, their family members. And I talk a lot more about, again, the violence of slavery itself. So every time Um, And there's a connection throughout history, popular culture, philosophy, religion, about how every time you rupture um, the relationship of hospitality, there is extreme violence involved. Sometimes it's symbolic. Sometimes it's very um, it's very clearly material types of violence um, and genocide in order to enact um, Um, abuses of hospitality. So that plays into this idea of how we can re-conceptualize immigration within the framework of hospitality and how doing so allows us to re-interrogate our past in order to build a stronger foundation that doesn't replicate the mistakes of the past into the present. I mean, you also bring in, um, I guess, kind of like legal analysis to um, partially uh, when you're thinking about immigration acts of uh, 1920s, but but also things like the Chinese Exclusion Act. And, and thinking across really those, those chapters, I'm, I'm intrigued as to, I suppose, where the law comes in um, to your analysis of, of hospitality. Um, and obviously, you know, feel free to, um, to kind of think about uh, any of the examples you use too. That's, that's an excellent question. I think once we tackle the theory and the conceptual part of 
hospitality, we really need a, um, a, a, a useful conceptualization of it within disciplines that we can then understand. So what ended up happening is once I began to parse out from philosophy, from religion, from all these different sources and understanding of hospitality, some of which came from queer theory, some of it came from um, native um, and indigenous uh, theory making, all of that formed the conceptualization of hospitality as a concept. And then I began to apply it to do two specific fields, one of which was media and through which I then begin to elaborate this idea of media hospitality. And the other is law, and I talk about regulatory hospitality. So in the realm of law, I look at everything from um, uh, presidential executive orders to uh, conversations that happen at the floor of Congress to things like debate that were televised or uh, covered in the New York Times because a lot of my medium, of course, is uh, journalism history through which I'm looking at these debates. Um, I look at um, uh, Supreme Court decisions, all of which then inform um, the uh, legal framework that I build about um, regulatory hospitality, which defines this idea of how the immigrant is treated within the legal system, whether they're offered journeys, pathways towards naturalization, uh, what rights they are afforded within the legal system. Um, I talk about Hannah Arendt and others' ideas of, of sort of baseline human rights and how much of them are respected within, you know, what, what rights does the non-citizen have within an immigrant system. So that's how law comes into it. And of course, as a sort of mirror to the law element, there is a media element throughout um, as a media scholar, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by um, the media analysis because, um, I mean, in some ways, the media analysis is uh, sort of as depressing, you know, as, as we might uh, kind of expect. But also, I think, intriguingly, in relation to the media analysis, you've also got, I think, stories of kind of resistance um, and, and I guess the kind of uh, everyday um, home and, and, and life building um, that contrasts with and, you know, is, is, is sort of um, in, in almost kind of opposition to some of the media tropes. So maybe let's stick with uh, Chinese immigrants just because uh, they come in quite early in the book. How do they sort of, I suppose, yeah, resist and, and, and almost kind of oppose some of the um, pretty sort of racist uh, stereotypes that were happening in, in the media at the time? So uh, I'll talk a little bit also methodologically because that might interest some of your listeners. There had to be very conscious decisions methodologically about what archives I consult. Um, and that specifically applies to the Chinese immigration chapter because there was a huge concentration of media coverage on Chinese immigration that was on the West Coast of the United States. And initially, this was not part of my initial data set, which was um, sort of more New York Times, um, you know, more the sort of established mainstream media that was concentrated very much on the East Coast, um, because I was trying to do media um sort of newspapers of record that continued to publish from the 1880s till the present day. So a lot of it was very concentrated on the East Coast. And so methodologically, it raises interesting questions about how you really need to make sure that 
your data set begins to mold as you look at different data sets and you look at different case studies that raise different questions. Um, the other thing that might be interesting in terms of what you were mentioning about it's depressing looking at history. I talk a lot more in the book about how a historical frame can be depressing, but it, it is also restorative in acknowledging, in validating the types of um, discrimination that people had gone through. Um, with regards to this concept of home building that I talk about more in the book, and this is not my own concept, this actually comes from sociologist Hassan Haj, who began to talk about home building with respect to food. Um, very influential uh, paper called Home Building in the Entrails of the West, um, I believe, about his experience as a Lebanese immigrant. Um, and this idea of how immigrants resist, how they um, legally um, culinarily, um, uh, all, all socially, um, even sort of intimately, um, not only begin to simulate the experience of home in order to home build, but also navigate a, a system that wasn't built for them in order to create a more hospitable place for their descendants. So I talk about how Chinese immigrants built um uh, Chinatowns in response to, uh, in many ways, sort of attacks by um, white settlers who were not comfortable with their uh, with their presence and with their work. Um, I talk about how um, Chinese immigrants came up with some very rudimentary forms of Photoshop in order to bring everyone together in a photograph. Um, so that you can kind of simulate togetherness when you're an immigrant and different parts of your family don't live in the same place and do not have the ability to get visas in order to live in the same place because this was during Chinese exclusion. Um, and finally, I talk about ways in which food, um, sort of the aesthetic and um, uh, sensory environment of home is important to this idea of home building. And this wasn't sim simply it with respect to Chinese immigrants. This was also true in terms of Italian immigrants who tried to build uh, sort of Italian markets. Think of Philadelphia, my, my then intellectual home um, and my first home in the United States, I continue to call it my home, um, has a very vibrant Italian market. Uh, New York has a very vibrant Italian sort of area, um, Chinatowns, all these ways in which um, immigrant groups, multiple different immigrant groups that form the United States form these places where they can build a sensory experience of home that allowed them to begin to home build, begin to build roots um, in their society, some of which we no longer see. So we have scholars that have worked on um, NAF, for example, and Sarah Galtieri and others have worked on the uh, Damascus part and the Syria town of New York that has since been wiped out almost entirely. Um, but others we can continue to see materially in our cities, such as the Chinatowns, such as the Italian markets. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, 
You can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I mean, that point gestures towards the way the book um, comes up to date. And, and, I, and I suppose, you know, the, the really sort of uh, obvious um, moment um, to, to think about hospitality is post 9-11. Um, and this is where uh, the kind of question of regulations um, comes in with your media analysis as well. And to kind of form, I suppose, <laughs> a question you could actually answer, um, what is the impact of 9-11 in terms of how hospitality was regulated, but also uh, the idea of um, kind of hospitality being a, a, a media construction to post uh, 9-11? I think, funny enough, um, there's this, there are these ebbs and flows in American immigration hospitality. As with almost every nation we look at, it's, it's very similar and it almost tracks to the ebb and flow of the United Kingdom, for example, conversations over Brexit versus where we were, say, 2013. Um, so I think there are these issues with um, 9-11 in the sense that it came at a time where overall the environment of hospitality was edging towards a lot more understanding towards immigrants. That said, um, with the arrival of 9-11, specifically the element of the regulatory framework, I, I'm, I'm not going to say the media framework was, um, was excellent. There was a huge amount of media hostility towards immigrants at the time. Um, but even more so, the immediate regulatory impact that 9-11 had, the creation of multiple um, very carceral logic frameworks that then uh, oversaw immigration had a lasting impact on um, American immigration hospitality. And some of it didn't end. I mean, NSEERS, the national uh, entry and exit record that um, immigrants coming from many um, Muslim-majority countries um, had, didn't end until... Um, at the end of the Obama era, and even then, it, by the time it ended, it was it was mostly a, a sort of procedural um, end, mostly because you could easily track all these things otherwise in a sort of different way. Um, so, nine eleven had a lasting impact in curtailing American immigration hospitality and and sort of catering to some of the impulses that. Um, have over time, uh, I mean, Julia Rose Kraut has written about this uh, as well, this idea of the immigrant constantly being seen as harboring um, dangerous political views, um, antagonist views to um, the national legal and political framework that over time shows up over and over again. So it's, it wasn't entirely new. I mean, it's very similar to the the socialist red scare of earlier periods that targeted 
sort of Eastern European immigrants, specifically Russians. Um, it's very similar to earlier periods that looked at um, different groups of uh, immigrants as harboring strange gods or being papists and, and as a result, not being able to have loyalty towards their new country, their new adopted country. So it's not new, but these ebbs and flows follow patterns that repeat um, repeat issues and reasons behind American immigration hostility and really global immigration hostility. Um, 9-11, however, was an extreme case of this rallying around the flag, this um, immediate and legalistic and mediatized hostility towards immigrants that had a lasting impact for several decades. It really didn't sort of wane for quite a long while um, until, um, and I'm sure you you read the, the experience of the travel ban and how that was a sort of radical moment in American immigration hospitality. Yeah, I mean, the, the book concludes really with, with with the travel ban and and one thing that we haven't talked about is is i guess the importance of kind of signs and and, and symbols really of, of of the contrast i think between the reality that you've been talking about and then the kind of the great myths of america as a kind of immigrant nation that's you know kind of open um and, and sort of welcoming and and maybe one route into that is with the statue of liberty so the statue of liberty is important um, in, in several different moments in the book but i guess um it'd be illustrative to hear a bit about what the story of the statue of liberty is and i guess where that sort of um myth plays out when we see things like an explicitly racist travel ban um under the trump administration you know Lady Liberty was a very interesting experience when writing and editing the book, because I know um, my then um, PhD supervisor, but also, you know, my mentor who has now become the voice in my head at the time, Dr. Barbie Zelitzer was looking at the Lady Liberty a much longer piece that I had written this part of the book and was like, are you sure you want to add this into the book? Um Really, what ended up happening is Emma Lazarus, who is a Jewish poet who, at the time of writing the poem that is emblazoned on the pedestal of Lady Liberty, of of the Statue of Liberty, was then working with uh, Jewish immigrants, Jewish refugees specifically, um, Russian Jewish refugees. Um, And she decided to write a poem that at the time was um, solicited as part of a fundraising campaign that could help um, fund the pedestal and fund the completion of the Statue of Liberty. So ironically, at a very interesting time where there is a uh, catastrophic, calamitous event happening to refugees, Emma Lazarus really channeled that pain into a very hopeful message. The other interesting thing that I find with the Statue of Liberty is that it was not intended to mean what it currently means. In fact, when we um, navigate the symbolism of the Statue of Liberty now, what we are navigating is the meaning imbued in the symbol by Emma Lazarus herself, who has become the voice of the statue. Um, 
Originally, it was called the New Colossus. It was named after the uh, men who had built it. It was supposed to indicate inter sort of intercountry relationships and uh, and um, sort of amicable relations between um, the United States and France. It was not intended to welcome immigrants at the shores uh, at the at the sort of first port of entry and the largest port of, port of entry in the United States. Um, so it's very interesting for me as a media scholar to see how Emma Lazarus's very small um, contribution to the debate on immigration hospitality, to the discourse on immigration hospitality, had the most lasting impact. It's also interesting because to me, it raises issues about how human nature operates in that intrinsically underneath it all, we all have a um, a desire to be welcoming, to um, to show a welcoming sort of um, shore to the other, uh, to welcome the stranger who shows up at our door. And this is evidenced in the fact that in spite of all the different waves of discourses that have happened over time with immigration, one of the most lasting is the words of Emma Lazarus and that symbol of the Statue of Liberty that almost every tourist will buy on a postcard or a trinket of some sort when coming to the United States. The other the, the other element that's really interesting is that the words of Emma Lazarus and that meaning that she imbued in, in the statue that was originally not supposed to mean um, what Emma Lazarus, Lazarus's words made it mean, um, shows up again during the debates on the travel ban and specifically during the uproar and the uh, public mobilization against the um, Trump-enacted executive order um, banning travel from um, Muslim-majority countries. And so we see that image again, and I, I look at um, and I actually got permission from multiple artists who were really happy to be featured in the book that did artistic recreations or um, reflections on the Muslim travel ban, all of which almost centered on the figure of um, Lady Liberty herself, which is really, really interesting. Um, so that shows up in the book, and it's it's an interesting thread that spans from the sort of earliest moments in which refugees first arrived at American shores to the moment in which we begin to see this message again and the symbol again when it comes to um, the travel ban um, period. Well, one of the things that we've touched on is, is this um, really crucial theoretical contribution of, of, of the framework of, of radical hospitality. And I think one of the things that's really great about the book is, is the sense that this is not a book that is just about a particular uh, single moment um, in the US or indeed actually in many other countries' um, histories and, and their relationships to immigration. And I'm sort of in, intrigued, uh, you know, there's um, going to be uh, an election in, in the UK probably next year um, where already, you know, the, the electoral cycle in the States never finishes, basically does it. But, but where do you think, I suppose, the book gives clues or lessons for what's likely to happen next in terms of um, perhaps just American hospitality for now and, and maybe, you know, even global hospitality to come? That's a wonderful question, David. It, I've been wondering 
I've been thinking about that for a while now, considering the debates that I've been watching over the course of Brexit and as an academic living in the UK for the past five years. Um, it, interestingly, this book was never intended to be simply about the US. It was supposed to include the UK and Canada and one Gulf country um, and only became about the US um, when two different things um, became apparent to me. A, that the US was far more hostile towards immigrants than this nation of immigrants narrative uh, may, um, may portray um, because of the travel ban, but also the fact that logistically the project needed to be a single country study as a result. This idea that the travel ban made me look inward at the United States was very, very interesting. Um, but the book was never intended to be simply about the U.S. because it was about hospitality as a concept that is very sort of universal, um, very unifying in the sense that it really is a decolonizing framework. It's very international in, in outlook. And I talk more about the theoretical part where I draw from um, Islamic scholarship, Hindu, Jain, um, indigenous theory, queer theory, and all these different elements in order to talk about how hospitality really allows us a framework that we can more or less be on the same frame sort of wavelength with because it is universally seen as a positive um, value across cultures. Where I see this going with respect to the United States and with, with respect to the United Kingdom as well is that what I'm interestingly seeing in both nations is more and more a public response towards immigration that is far more hospitable and far more welcoming than the policy response. And, and here's an example. Um, as a Muslim immigrant in the United States at the time, I was really shocked to see um, people show up at airports and um, with signs and chants of let them in about uh, presumably immigrants who are coming from majority Muslim countries, which with the history of 9-11 and the Islamophobia that has been brewing for decades since was a pivotal moment to understanding how immigration hospitality in the United States coming from the public was a lot more uh, was a lot more positive than what the policy uh, may um, may suggest. Similarly, in the UK, you see quite a lot more positive views of immigration than the policy uh, which we have um, come to call the hostile environment, which is really interesting because it's part of that framework of, of hospitality that I talk about. Um, so again, there's, some, there's these similar um, patterns of um, research showing that the public perception, public opinion on immigration is a lot more positive than policy and policy is tracking behind. Um, so what I expect may happen is that there's going to be public mobilization towards greater immigration in the future. This might be me being very optimistic, but I, I just simply don't think that um, that public opinion versus policy can continue to be this um, out of sync. Um, Pew Research has done multiple studies on this. Um, there are multiple other studies that I can reference if you provide um, sources for your audience members. I can give you those after um, after we speak. Um, but 
oftentimes what we see is a lot more positive opinion of immigration than um, than the policy. Um, so I do think eventually there is going to be public mobilization towards greater immigration hospitality. That said, in the UK, the structure of the political system is uh, very intransigent to public opinion in ways that are um, are different from the US. The US has its own problems. There's the Electoral College. There's all these sort of anti-democratic ways in which the system is built. Um, but the UK has different ones. So it'll take time, I think. Um, and it remains to be seen. I'm currently in Scotland. It also remains to be seen how questions over Scotland's um, views on leaving the United Kingdom, where one of the conversations that they are having as reasons for wanting to leave is immigration policy and the, the desire to legislate immigration differently. Um, and to specifically exercise greater immigration hospitality in Scotland than England, that is also going to inform those conversations in the future elections in the United Kingdom, perhaps not to the point of um, Scotland leaving the United Kingdom per se, because that's a separate sort of referendum issue, but also in um, pushing um, policymakers towards greater immigration hospitality in order to preempt issues of um, Scottish independence, which Westminster, um, I don't believe, is supportive of. What about in terms of your own work? I mean, just um, thinking about the kind of future um, for hospitality, you know, both here in the UK, where where, where you're working, and also in in, in the States, where, where the book is focused on, I detected like a whole range of different possible research projects and research agendas. Um, or are you going to be doing something, I guess, kind of completely different in terms of your next project? So the next project is very much more national. The The idea was that in my original book, I had really hoped to do a comparative project that brought the UK into the conversation. Um, and I was prevented from doing so because of the travel ban, but also because it really became apparent that the United States really needed a stop and think <laughs> moment, um, a you know, to a book specifically about that. So the next book is actually a I wouldn't say a similar project, but I would say a project that really looks at this idea of immigration hospitality and the idea of nationalism comparatively between um, the United between the, the nations of the United Kingdom, really. So that's that's the next book, which I'm currently working on. It's very early days. 